Welcome to The Forest Garden, a podcast for gardeners who want to upgrade their landscapes into biodiverse food forest systems. For our first episode of season four of the podcast, we are lucky to be talking with Marie Villune about her cookbook, Forage Harvest Feast, and many of the lesser known edible plants featured in it. Of course, we couldn't cover every chapter of the book, so we put together a short list of standouts, including, but not limited to, prickly ash, black cherry, black locust, milkweed, spicebush, persimmon, sunchokes, pokeweed, and sumac. Marie's knowledge of the culinary uses of these plants is mind-blowing. Stick with us. Marie Villune, why don't we start off with your personal background and a little description of how you became interested in foraged foods and uncommon or unusual fruits and vegetables in the first place? Okay. I grew up in South Africa. And the town I was born in is in the middle of South Africa. It's called Bloemfontein, which is an interesting word for someone who turned out to really, really like plants because Bloemfontein means flower fountain. Um, So it was probably named by some really weary person who arrived there and found water and found flowers and decided I'm not going any further, I'm staying here. So I was born there. Um, in a climate which is quite interesting. Everyone expects anywhere in Africa to be super hot and tropical. At least that's the feedback I get when I when I tell people I was born in Africa. But Bloemfontein had really cold winters, like biting cold, um, freezing nights, and then warm, rainy summers. And curiously, the plants I grew up with there remind me a little of some of the plants I've got to know in North America. Um, A lot of fruit trees that need some cold and a lot of plants that need a really cold, hard winter. And there I started becoming very interested in plants because my mom was a great gardener. She, She just has, still has very green fingers. And I think to get me out of the house, she just gave me seeds and gave me this little plot of land behind the house and said, here, go and go and make a vegetable garden. And so at a really, really young age, and I'm, I'm guessing I was probably around four years old, I was, I was growing little vegetables and herbs and, and just got my fingers in the soil. So that really was my introduction to, to growing plants. So that's a really long answer. <laughs> and we haven't got to the foraging yet. I don't think it was a long answer at all. And I think it's very interesting that the climate of the area that you grew up is somewhat similar to the climate of the Northeast. And yeah, I I never would have thought of that. So very, very interesting already. (laughs) Okay. When I was 12 years old, my family moved south to Cape Town, which is literally at the southern tip of Africa. And the climate there is completely different from the climate in Bloemfontein. So I went from these cold winters, dry, thunderstormy summers, to very wet, green, Mediterranean climate winters, like California, parts of California. And summers were very dry. It's pretty much drought-like in in summer. And that whole climate was just a very, very big change, but also very exciting. 
at that age, sort of 12, 13, 14, I started becoming very interested in the indigenous plants that grew in the Cape Town area. And for anyone who hasn't visited Cape Town or seen pictures of it, the, the city is dominated by this huge mountain, Table Mountain, which is this long mountain range that stretches down in a peninsula all the way to Cape Point. And this whole mountain in the middle of a really big city is still covered in a lot of indigenous vegetation, uh, which is known as feinbos in, in Afrikaans. And if you translate that, literally it means fine bush, but it's really a collective name to describe this very complex collection of plants that are very aromatic. There are lots of plants in the Rutaceae family, which is interesting because all the citrus fruit we know really, really well, lemons, oranges, yuzu, they belong to the Rutaceae family. Um, prickly ash, Sichuan pepper belongs to the Rutaceae family. But in Cape Town, these members are little shrubby plants. They don't look very interesting. They've got really needly leaves. But what really joins them to those other members of the citrus family is their fragrance, super aromatic. So when you're walking, and even at that age, when I was walking through this vegetation, you, you have this incredible aroma that springs up around you. And because my mom was interested in gardening and because I already was pretty obsessed with plants at that point, I started reading a lot about these plants in field guides. South African field guides are really, really good. They're very beautiful because this particular vegetation type, feinbos, is incredibly diverse. It, it belongs to the smallest plant kingdom in the world, but it's the most diverse for its size. So you can imagine all the literature that grows up around such a complex plant system. So I really geeked out. I became very interested in feinbos. I became interested in what might actually be edible because I was beginning to cook and discover kind of the alchemy of the kitchen and the creativity that you could express in the kitchen. And it was just interesting to explore these two things at the same time. So the plants and food for me were kind of inseparable at that point. Understandably. Yeah, the aroma or the aromatic qualities that you described sound like something that would be sort of a, um, a transformative moment that would catapult you into the full-on world of, of plant nerdery. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I mean, smell is so, so interesting. You know, it's one of our oldest senses. And, and even now, one of the things I do with foraging is I try to capture smell and scent. And every season kind of has a smell because there are plants that are opening their flowers in, in every season, every week, just about. There's a different plant. And one of the ways I capture those is in a, a vermouth where you, you steep different plants, including flowers. So not just leaves, but also flowers in quite a hard liquor like, like vodka. You could use gin too, although that's kind of aromatic to begin with. And then you blend them into a white wine. It's, it's kind of, you do it by ear as it were, except you're using your tongue. You, you keep tasting until you've got this like perfect blend of a particular season and you you turn on the you you put the cap on the bottle close it up 
open it a year later or six months later and and opening that cap again is really weird because you get all these scents and perfumes from that time and you've already forgotten them you you can't remember spring anymore but the minute that bottle is open again you suddenly smell honeysuckle or crabapple blossom it's it's very magical and I think that that early experience in Cape Town's Feinbos, which is is very much a, a very nostalgic memory, I think that kind of led me to this vague obsession with with capturing a time and a place through unusual ingredients. Wow, that was beautiful the way that you described that vermouth. It sounds like a magic potion, honestly, like something. It is a magic potion. It's the most magical thing. I think that that one can do. And of course, it it kind of hinges on alcohol, which I think is increasingly problematic. I've gone like through through six six weeks now, yes, of of not drinking. And that suddenly makes you think, hmm, how do I do this without the alcohol? <laughs> and it's challenging, but there are ways. Um, so so making ferments, infusions, steeping things to to get the sort of essential scent and flavor out of an ingredient is it's a constant challenge but it's also really really inspiring it really forces you to to think and to experiment and to just be curious so where did you learn to i mean like you you make it sound so easy (laughs) (laughs) um but if I, I feel like if I tried to do what you described, it might not turn, like my magic potion wouldn't be so magical. Where did you learn these skills? Did you attend culinary school or was it taught from a family member? Um, how did it happen? That's a really, it's a really hard question to answer because a lot of what I do now has kind of been autodidactic in the sense that I taught myself, but you also never really teach yourself. So there are some old school ways of learning that I definitely inhaled when I was a teenager and a young adult. And those were just books. I was very interested in reading. I think I was an introvert and and a learner. So I was quite comfortable on my own and really comfortable learning stuff from books. So there were all those field guides I mentioned growing up, really good books, which taught me the idea of plants and gave me the basics of plants. And then there were cookbooks. And I sort of absorbed like a sponge, a lot of just plain kind of cook's technique from cookbooks. So I did not go to culinary school. I would have liked to have gone to culinary school, but but my whole academic and, and early professional career went in a completely different direction. I I was singing and into classical music and I was an opera singer, but in the background was was this real love of cooking and of plants, which again, I can't separate. I think if I could have my whole life over again, I probably would have focused on maybe botany, culinary history, ethnobotany, I'm not sure. But the, the good news is that there's so much information, there are so many resources available in terms of books, in terms of websites, apps, and you know the endless world of YouTube that there's always somewhere to learn a skill. But I think what is essential to learning a skill is the desire to learn the skill. First, you need to be curious. And I think it's the curiosity that propels chefs, cooks, foragers. It's always you're looking for something interesting. 
And then when you find it, and you usually find it by accident, you ask yourself, now what? What do I do? How do I translate this plant into food on a plate? And to me, that's that's the the huge sort of creative drive of foraging and cooking combined. Where did I learn cooking? I definitely learned cooking from my mom, who was a very good cook. She had a really good sense of taste and balance and everything she made was delicious. But the one thing she she rarely did, and this still interests me, is she didn't improvise. I'm a really big improviser. My mom followed recipes like to the letter. And even quite recently, my mom is now very old. She's 90 years old. She doesn't cook anymore. But even very recently, she sort of looked at me very critically. <laughs> she said, Marie, you never follow a recipe. And to her, that was just damning. Like, why do you not follow a recipe? And I kind of wanted to say, you know, I have written two cookbooks. <laughs> but um, still, the, the love of, of taste and, and good cooking came definitely from my mom. I was also really lucky to be friends with with people who ran restaurants and I was able to to work in a couple of restaurants, you know, um, in the kitchen or behind the bar where I just was very quiet and learned from them. So with my mom, I grew up with a more French approach, I think French technique to cooking and and with friends, it was actually very Mediterranean. So it was these two interesting combinations to have at a at a pretty young age. I presume it was that curiosity that you described that motivated you to write your book, which, uh, and when I say your book, I mean Forage, Harvest, Feast, A Wild Inspired Cuisine, that when we're talking about resources for people can look to, to, to get inspired and to um, put things from plant to plate, I think that this is quite the resource. So Forage, Harvest, Feast came about after I'd written my first book where I began to touch on seasonally foraged plants and, and what was available in what season. For me, food and plants are intimately connected to a time of year. Um, you know, we think of the year in terms of four seasons. I really see a season every month or every two weeks. There, there are many micro seasons. And as I cook, and I usually cook pretty spontaneously using maybe a little tidbit that I have foraged or something that I've preserved in my forage cupboard. And I find myself always just mentally taking notes or if something turned out really, really well and I think it's completely delicious and maybe I want to do it again, I write it down immediately afterwards. And over time, after I wrote my first book, I realized that I just had these notebooks, these little moleskin notebooks, which were stacking up more and more and more recipes, which I was revisiting and retesting. And I just thought, what can I, what can I do with all this? I feel like I just want to share how exciting this is with other people who like to cook or who like to garden or who love to forage or are curious about foraging. And while the curiosity, I think, is paramount, it's also the, 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 the real love of flavor. And that's what makes foraging interesting to me because we suddenly have all these unusual flavors that are not part of our everyday conventional 
you know, fruit or vegetable selection. I love regular fruits and vegetables. I love farmer's markets. But to have new ingredients or underused or forgotten ingredients to add to your cooking, it's it's extremely creative. It's like I don't paint, but I feel that even cooking dinner, and even if it's just for yourself, it's this real act of creativity. And if you can introduce an unusual ingredient, say like prickly ash, you, you suddenly feel that maybe I'm the only person tonight in New York City eating fresh prickly ash leaves. <laughs> and it sort of makes you feel, hmm, something is going well in the world. The world seems to be on fire right now, but I have this very beautiful little plate of dinner right in front of me. And, and that's special and that's unique. Yeah, I have to say, I was pretty blown away when I saw this book for the first time and saw that the prickly ash had like its whole own chapter. I could rewrite the prickly ash chapter because I would have like another hundred things to say about it. I've learned so much about it, you know, since since publishing Forage Harvest Feast. And and that's also what's exciting about learning plants is you you never really reach the end of experimentation or exploration, even with a single ingredient. So prickly ash is really what I think of as American Sichuan. The species we have up here is uh, Xanthoxylum americanum, but Sichuan pepper from East Asia is Xanthoxylum piperatum, and also I think the other species is Simulans. There might be another species that I'm that I'm not recalling right now. So completely different continents like Northeast, East Coast of North America, and then Eastern Asia, with this really, really similar flavor. And when someone on one of my walks, I lead these walks in, in New York City's green spaces to introduce people to, to the plants that grow here. If someone on one of my walks, say, grew up in Japan, and they see prickly ash, and this happened to me one spring, you know, she came up to me and she said, oh, you've got Sancho here. And I was like, what's Sancho? And she said, this plant right here. And I said, prickly ash? Yes, Sancho. <laughs> it's, it's this kind of light bulb moment where people connect over a plant that has huge meaning, but completely different meanings in different places. And yet it's happy there and it's happy here because of similar climactic conditions, hard winters, really humid summers. So with prickly ash, a lot of my subsequent culinary exploration uh, draws a lot on, on Eastern Asian traditions. And to me, that's also exciting because it, it, it's very humbling. You, you learn that, oh, well, actually you did not discover this plant. <laughs> it's, uh, it's been around for millennia and it's used in, you know, these famous storied cuisines uh, in different cultures, and you're really just scratching the surface. So that's that's always a great way to learn a plant is to to go back to its its geographic roots, or in this case, its cousin's roots, and to to learn how it's used in a different place. Because I I tend to like improvising and creating, I will often then detract from the traditional uses, but perhaps apply some of those techniques to a new way of using a flavor like that. And so you said that you 
that you use the leaves. And I also saw in your book, um, you talk about using prickly ash oil in a few different recipes. I've had Sichuan peppercorns from Xanthos Island uh, Simulans, which a friend of mine uh -huh. actually grows in his backyard. But wow. I'm amazed that you are able to find it just in Brooklyn, like in New York City, Xanthos Island <laughs> is just like, do you go to like botanical gardens? I mean, where are you finding these these plants? There is there is a Xanthos Island, I think it's Simulans that grows at the New York Botanic Garden. So that's that's the, the, the East Asian tree that, that is amazing. Um, but there are wild feral prickly ash trees kind of all over the city in the foresty parks. And they become easy to recognize once, once you kind of have their pattern imprinted in your brain. They have such thorny branches that uh, you know you could mistake them for briar or bramble or even roses if you're if you're not used to IDing plants and they're they're kind of all over so I get very excited when I see them and I kind of mark the spot mentally and go back at different times of year to to visit it to see if it has fruit or to see the little green leaves and I actually grow one on our super tiny terrace here in Brooklyn I wish they were more available to plant although i know quite a few people think of them as quite weedy do you, do you ever hear that about the native prickly ash you know i'm not so familiar with the species that well number one i didn't even know that it's growing in ditches and roadsides in forested areas of new york so i, I would say that your prickly ash knowledge greatly surpasses my own <laughs> well maybe new york's weird i don't i I would like to sort of trace back, you know, how did the prickly ash get here? Has it always been here? Has it just seeded and grown babies? I don't know. But yes, so so prickly ash oil is amazing. The young leaves are amazing in, in early springtime. I, I eat the ones from our terrace. When they leaf out, they're, they're very glossy, really pretty, shiny leaves. And at that point, they're they're considered a delicacy. And they have a really mild flavor of, of Sichuan pepper. So if you've never, for anyone who's never eaten Sichuan pepper, especially when it's fresh, it's actually not, it's not peppery. It's, it's not like a chili pepper or black pepper. To me, it's very citrusy. And it belongs to that Rutacea family, that big citrus family. It's kind of lemony, but if you eat the fresh peppercorn or even the dry one, the famous effect that it gives you is a kind of numbing. The, the side of your tongue will just start to tingle, which is very freaky, especially fresh. And then the side of your tongue will just, just go numb. So in, in Sichuan cuisine, prickly ash or Sichuan pepper is, is used with really hot food to kind of tone it down. It's, it's used in balance. The most familiar food I can think of, dish I can think of with with Sichuan pepper and chilies is mapo tofu. So I make that a lot, but I use our native prickly ash, which is delicious. Yeah, the flavor, well, first of all, I have to say, I absolutely love that Sichuan flavor after having it at an authentic Asian restaurant near where my school is. It's just like, you can never go back. I just only wanna have Sichuan, um, Sichuan flavored Asian food from this point on, or from that point until the end of time. But it reminds me of, um, toothache plant the spilanthes almost in terms of its um the numbing that you described oh interesting yeah yeah i hadn't thought of that 
So let's jump to a different plant chapter. Is there one that you'd like to talk about in particular? Um, I could probably talk about all plants. You, you're probably getting that impression. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, hmm. Cherry, so or you pick. Yeah, black. We could. I think we should do black cherry because that's one that when I another one in your book that I was like, wow. I mean, for me, black cherries have a really strong flavor that hmm. isn't always my favorite. So the fact that you've been able to make it into something that is delicious is really mind-boggling to me. Well, I mean, maybe my delicious isn't your delicious. <laughs> Tastes are so, so subjective. But I th you're right. Black cherry, and we're talking about Prunus serotino mostly. Um, wild black cherry is can be challenging. It's not a big, fat, domestic cherry. It's this this long raceme or stem with with little cherries on on like a cluster, like a beautiful earring, actually. The cherries are small and the the flesh to pit ratio is is not very generous. So you have a big pit and not that much flesh. But I think the trick with falling in love with with black cherry is you need to taste. And that fruit also needs to be super ripe. And when you're just looking at it, um, black cherries are ripe when they're so, so, so black and shiny, they look like they're about to burst. If you try it when it's red or purple, it's going to be horrible, like, like licking the most unripe persimmon ever. It's very tannic, super astringent. But a ripe black cherry is to me, freakily like ruby grapefruit. To me, that's the that's the flavor profile. There's sweetness, um, there's a lot of aroma, and then there's still that tannin, which you never quite get rid of. So I think of black cherry in terms mostly of using the juice. And because I had that cooking background that was kind of French in foundation, what do you think of with French food? I, I think of wine often as being part of a pan sauce. If you're, say, roasting vegetables or roasting a chicken, apologies, vegans, um, you might put a little splash of wine into the, into the pan afterwards to create a really aromatic pan sauce. That's how I use black cherry juice. Uh, it's very complex in flavor when it's cooked or when it's raw, but it's not necessarily overwhelmingly sweet. And I think that's quite nice for a fruit because fruits are usually sweet. And this is this is kind of more grown up. The sweet ways, I'm just trying to think, what do I do with, with black cherries that is sweet? One of the easiest things to do with it is once you have the juice, uh, just freeze it in a dish, maybe with a little bit of sugar, depending on the flavor of those particular fruit, put it in the freezer, scratch it up with a fork every hour or so. And then you have this really delicious granita, which is almost like a sorbet, but much easier to make. It doesn't have that smooth sort of syrupy texture. It's much more granular, but it's an incredible flavor, super refreshing, like exactly what you want to eat in August when we're all dying of humidity. If there's a tip for processing black cherries, you absolutely need a food mill, like a cheap food mill. It can cost $20. But they have so many pits that you really just want to dump them in a food mill and and turn that handle away until you've got all the juice captured. Usually I freeze it like in a little ice cube tray. Once it's frozen, put it in a dish or in a bag in the freezer and just use an ice cube at a time when I'm cooking. 
Very interesting. Yeah, I think you might have converted me because now that I think more about it, the flavor, <laughs> you know, the flavor of black cherry might in it would work really well with all sorts of meats and like as a chutney or a sauce. Um, I don't know why I never thought of that before. I mean, I've had like sour peach chutney on meats that's been delicious. So yeah, I don't know. You might you may have just converted me to be a black cherry. No, it's del yeah, I hope so. Especially if you like chutneys. One of one of the things I make with black cherry, I call it a BC sauce black cherry sauce because i grew up with something called hp sauce which is like like a steak sauce but english so it's got a lot of vinegar a lot of sugar a lot of fruit and spice in it and black cherry is like the ideal base to make a, a condiment a, a sauce like that because it it just plays very well with other flavors oh man what next i'm like so excited there's so many things that we can <laughs> talk about do you want to do uh, black locust or milkweed? Oh, that's a hard choice. Um, black or, locust. Yeah, so your whole you have a whole chapter on black locust. I've never had a black locust flower. <clears throat> I feel like I'm missing out. I'm kind of happy for you. You say you've never had a black locust flower. So when are they going to be in season? Late May. When are, when when do they bloom up in Massachusetts? Well, so I actually live in Connecticut, so it's probably... Oh, pretty, Connecticut, sorry. But I spent a lot of time in Massachusetts as well. Um, it's probably pretty similar to when they bloom for you. Okay. So so to me, black locust season is very exciting. A, because they smell so good. Suddenly the city smells really, really good. Um, but they're also delicious. I say that too often. They taste lovely. <laughs> uh, black locust is Rubinia. Rubinia pseudo acacia. Yeah. And it its name is interesting to me because the species pseudo acacia means kind of, not really an acacia. But in Europe, black locust is known as acacia. So if you've ever seen acacia honey in the US, and it usually costs a lot of money, it's actually black locust honey. And it's usually imported from Europe, where black locusts have naturalized. They apparently landed up there around the 1700s when people in Europe were freaking out about North American plants because they were unusual to them. So black locust is all over Europe. Anyone in Europe will know where to find one, except they will call it acacia. So here I do call it black locust. And the flavor of the flowers, the flowers is the part that I eat, is a little bit like snap peas. Sweet, they've got a soft, slightly crunchy texture, and usually I'll use them fresh because they're just, that that texture is so ephemeral and so so wonderful, so unusual, that they're fantastic in in salads. In fact, they're on the cover of Forage Harvest Feast, yes. I'm just looking at the cover, so I have black locust flowers picked picked off the stem on top of a bowl of couscous with Aleppo pepper, sumac, and greenbrier shoots. That's like a really easy early summer salad. The other thing I like to do with black locust is their perfume is very special. We spoke about vermouth a little earlier. One of the things I'll do in early summer, late spring, when black locust is in season, is finish a vermouth with their really fleeting perfume. So I'll have a, a bowl of wine out on the counter overnight packed with black locust flowers. They'll just steep overnight and I strain it off the next morning and then I blend in the other botanicals and seal it up in a bottle as quickly as possible. 
And if you open that bottle a few months later, the first scent you get, and I'm really not lying, it sounds like I'm making this up, the first scent you get is black locust. It's like you're smelling the flowers. It's really magical. The magic potion thing is just really blowing my mind. <laughs> I was a witch in another life. <laughs> um, did they? So it sounds like they kind of taste similar maybe to Siberian pea shrub flowers, Caragena arborescens. Have you ever had those? No, I have not. That sounds interesting. Yeah, that's a that's a very interesting multi-stemmed shrub that um, it when I first had the flowers, I was like, oh, tastes like peas, like tastes like a little snap pea sort of. So, yeah, I guess I'll have to but also like a legume. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. It is a leguminous tree as well. Well, I'm very excited. I guess I'll have to um, keep I have a black locust tree in my backyard that just plopped itself there and I have you know I guess I must miss the flowering window every year I wonder what I'm doing at that time oh that's interesting yeah one of the things Europeans like to make with them is is like beignet like like a fritter which I know some people also do with with elderflowers they just dip the whole cluster and I do this like once a year dip the whole cluster into like a tempura batter give it a, a brief fry and then eat it with like just a dusting, a little bit of sugar. It's incredible. Yeah, no, that sounds absolutely delicious. Okay, so should we move on? Uh, maybe we could talk about milkweed? Sure. Okay, so I've only had milkweed harvested from around my family's home. Just, you know, simply kind of the same way you would cook asparagus or, you know, just kind of in a pan. And it was delicious. And I know that there's a million different ways that people make milkweed. So I'm wondering what your favorites are. Milkweed is is really interesting. It's one of those those Native American vegetables that that has been, you know, almost forgotten as a food unless you're a forager. And it's so useful because it's it's edible, almost root to shoot, nose to tail. It's something you can really eat from mid-spring all the way through to its its seed capsule stage, which is, I would say, mid to late, no, late summer. There are lots of caveats with, with common milkweed, which is Asclepia syriaca. And the first thing you'll probably hear about is, what about the monarch butterflies? you're killing the monarch butterflies because you're eating their milkweed. And this is a very good instinct and it's a very good warning because monarchs do, as you know, lay their eggs on milkweed plants and then those tiny little eggs hatch into larvae, caterpillars, caterpillars eat the leaves, pupate, eventually form more monarch butterflies. So it is very important to, to be mindful of where you are foraging. And it's why I really encourage people to grow milkweed if they have the space, whether it's a community garden or a small farm or a backyard. This particular milkweed is one that really does not like to be planted in a container because it grows uh, via runners underground. So it, it's quite aggressive. It really wants to grow. It wants to escape that pot. But let's assume that you have a, a great common milkweed patch and that it's sustainable to, to harvest in the spring the the very tender shoots are amazing as you mentioned cooked just like asparagus you don't want to cook them to death just blanch them which means really just drop dropping them into water for a minute or two until they're cooked through very tender 
And the flavor is really hard to describe. Once, once you've eaten it more than one time, you'll go, oh, well, that tastes just like common milkweed. <laughs> it really doesn't taste like anything else. It's, it's a wonderful flavor. So that's the spring shoot. Just before the flower blooms, it has little buds that look almost like broccolini. They don't taste like broccolini again. They taste just like common milkweed. And these also you can either steam or blanch. Usually I like the, the boiling water method because as soon as you work with common milkweed, you'll see that it has a lot of latex, this really white sticky sap, which oozes out when you when you cut the stems. So if you drop the, the stems or the buds in boiling water for a minute, that just disappears, it gets taken care of. It's a little messier if you steam. So how do I like to eat the buds? Really delicious with just a few drops of soy sauce or shoyu, some sesame oil, or you can go in a different direction and just dress them with olive oil, lemon juice, a little bit of salt. Super simple. One of the things I love to do with, with the buds, maybe once a year, is deep fry them really quickly, drain them, and then season them with ramp leaf salt that I make every April just from the leaves of ramps. It's an incredible incredible treat. So that's the shoots, that's the buds. Um, next up is the flowers. If you've never smelled common milkweed, it's it's one of the best smells, one of the best perfumes I've ever smelled. Really, really rich, very heavy, almost, almost too much. Uh, so every year I will make a, a ferment with common milkweed flowers. And one of the reasons is not just to capture that scent and flavor, but it's stunning. It's such a beautiful color. It's this um, hard to describe combination of lilac and pink. And when you're fermenting it in a big jar, I use like a, an eight cup mason jar. The flowers all float to the top of your ferment and the rest of it is sugar and water, which dissolves. But as they sit there for a couple of days, this beautiful cloud of lilac just starts forming at the top of the jar and it's just suspended there it's it's this incredible thing it's just it's like art in front of you and then you swirl it up and in a few days when it's really really fizzy you strain out the flowers and you bottle it to drink like a wild soda or you carry on the ferment which is what i usually do to make a natural vinegar and that natural vinegar which forms I don't use a yeast mother or I don't inoculate it it's really just the, the yeasts that's on the flower that becomes really tart but it keeps that perfume of the flower and I tend to cook quite a lot with with vinegars but they're also a great thing to to drink if you cut it with like a chilled water or chilled seltzer if you if you're not into alcohol or if you want to just have a very refreshing drink in summer I, I think of them as sipping vinegar. So common milkweed sipping vinegar is, is amazing. So that's the flowers. Uh, and then the last stage after flowers is seeds. You, you'll be familiar with what a common milkweed seed capsule looks like. It's really strange looking. It's elongated and it has all these, they look like little growths on the outside, like little warty protuberances. But the flavor is weirdly like the flowers smell. So if you eat those young, immature seed capsules of common milkweed, you again, either steam, boil, or bake. Baking's amazing, they get all crispy on the outside. Once you bite into them, 
you go, but this tastes like the smell of common milkweed flowers. It's a very, very interesting vegetable. And what I really hope to see, uh, and it's one of the things I, I sort of advocate for also in my book, is more farmers, small farmers, not monoculture farmers, small farmers growing wild fields with common milkweed and bringing some of that milkweed to farmers markets and leaving the rest for, for monarch butterflies. I agree. I think that that is, um, is very needed. And it doesn't, there's so, this is a good example of a vegetable that our culture doesn't really see as a vegetable. It has the name weed in it. So, you know, <laughs> if you're not in the know, you're just like, oh yeah, milkweed. What, what does that do? It, it, I guess, you know, monarchs, that's all it does. Do you know the, the swamp milkweed, can you use that the same way that you use common milkweed? I, I, the short answer is I don't really know. I actually have the swamp milkweed growing on my terrace. It seems to behave a little bit better in containers than the common milkweed. It just doesn't look as juicy <laughs> in its, in its shooty stage as common milkweed, which is a, a really sort of plump, fleshy plant comparatively. I find the swamp milkweed to be much more fibrous looking. But having said that, I've never I've never tried to eat it. I suspect that there are quite a lot more Asclepia species that are edible than we currently use. I'm just trying to think of some of the other species, and I'm going to get the species wrong. Is it virescence, possibly? Not sure. They look very similar to the common milkweed. They, they have that sort of fleshy, heavy, lush appearance, which is not a very scientific description. <laughs> but short answer, I'm not sure about the swamp milkweed. And of course, some of the milkweeds, as you know, have a reputation for being very toxic, including um, butterfly milkweed, the orange one, Asclepius tuberosa. And this is always a little hard in foraging terms to really verify because a lot of toxicity studies involve livestock and animals and animals that would graze on a plant raw, like they can't cook, we can cook. A lot happens in, in the cooking stage. So there are a lot of question marks. And I know that there's showy milkweed, which is... Um... The species name is Speciosa, and that's another one that I see around, and I wonder, like, eh, it looks pretty similar to common milkweed. Is that one edible? I don't know. But like you said, I mean, a lot of the the research that's out there is based off of cows and and things that you know. It's just it's not comparable to humans who are going to cook and prepare the these foods. More uh, research needed, I guess. It's, it's fascinating. It's just you know there isn't the funding. Who who funds forage studies? <laughs> Yeah, there should be the funding, but yeah, maybe maybe with all the USDA money that's going out to um, support agroforestry stuff in in 2024, we'll see. Okay, so moving on from milkweed, is there anything from the list that really stands out to you that you'd like to speak about next? Persimmons. I mean, people are quite familiar with persimmons. I, I sometimes think maybe spice bush. It's funny we're on the same like plane, spiritual plane here. I, I was either <laughs> hoping that we would talk about either persimmons or spicebush. Why don't we start with spicebush and then maybe we can move on to persimmon because although people are familiar with persimmons, I mean, I harvest tons of persimmons and then I'm like, wait, what do I do with all these things? I just, I'm, I'm going to eat <laughs> You know, like I, I've now discovered where all the persim the American persimmons are in my area. But when I come oh, wow. back, you know, just a, and they're, they're not like growing wild. They're intentional plantings. Yeah, uh, yeah, mine I too. I feel kind of the same way with spicebush. I mean, my uh, family's home 
is essentially in a spice bush swamp and mm. there's spice bush everywhere in, my, in when i was a, a child my dad would cut it back he didn't know what it was and he was like oh what's this weedy thing that's encroaching on my manicured lawn uh, <laughs> what's this weedy thing that smells so good <laughs> right yeah and then it supports you know so many different spe native species and all the rest oddly enough he cut one back so much that it formed a single leader and is now like a 15 foot tall like spice bush tree which is really weird to look at um wow. yeah very odd i guess you know it's probably the only example of someone ever trying to train a spice bush <laughs> although that's yeah that's a good point who trains a spice bush they just take them for granted yeah no one no one does um except for him completely accidentally while trying to just cut it back anyways uh, now here in the in 2024 we know that spice bush is a beneficial plant and i have trained them to not cut it back <laughs> but I don't know what to do with it in terms of uh, edible uses. So yeah. So what are your favorite ways to use it in the kitchen? Spice bush is probably the plant I could talk about endlessly because I'm so curious again about why a spice bush is not in every supermarket, in every spice aisle, in everybody's pantry we, we're using cinnamon, we're using allspice, we're using cloves, all of these, you know, subtropical, tropical spices. But spice bush, which is as versatile, I think, as any of these, especially I think cinnamon is, is quite a good comparison. Spice bush is this native North American spice, which almost nobody knows. And I live in a, a bit of a foraging cooking bubble. So I think that people know about spice bush, but most people who cook and even who garden don't don't know what it is. There's one, one spot in the US where you can buy spice bush and that's you 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 probably are familiar with them, Integration Acres in Southeast Ohio. There might at this point be somebody else selling spice bush, but I'm I'm not aware of who they are. But I talk about it a lot. I cook with it a lot. And people always want to know, well, where do I get it if it's not growing close to me? And you get it at integrationacres.com. They sell dried spice bush. And I think they call it Appalachian Allspice, which is one of its other common names, which is just this, this beautifully evocative name. So spice bush, it's a small tree. It's it's an understory tree. It it usually grows, as you mentioned, in in swampy areas or in kind of shaded areas. I I see it in forests in New York City, and yes, there are forests in New York City. Inwood Hill Park is is a big old forest on Manhattan Island, and there's there's a huge sort of valley of spice bush there. There are male trees, and there are female spice bush trees and it's the the females that produce the berries which are actually droops it's a little fleshy fruit with a single seed inside and the berry is really really aromatic if you've never smelled or tasted spice bush i usually compare it to orange zest or clementine zest with a little bit of black pepper someone once suggested ground ginger Someone else on one of the walks I lead said cardamom. So it kind of suggests different things to different people. But like citrus zest, if you're an avid cook, you can use that in a sweet way. Think of it in drizzle cakes and cookies. 
um, desserts, but you can also use it in really savory ways. It's the middle of winter and I, I tend to do a lot of sort of low, slow cooking in, in winter, like making really slow cooked stews that cook for several hours. But adding some spice bush is a great way to add a layer of flavor, kind of the way you would use maybe some orange peel. But it's not just those fruits that are very, very useful. They're, they're the most concentrated in terms of flavor, the green fruits in summer and the red fruits in winter, in, in late summer rather. They dry very well. So it's, it's something once they're dried, I would, would keep for like up to a year. But it's not just the fruits. You can use almost every part of the plant. If you scratch the branches, you'll immediately get that really strong orange peel flavor from the scratched branch. So the little twigs, if you can harvest spice bush sustainably, or if you have your own trees, and I urge you to plant your own spice bush trees, they're amazing. The little twigs themselves are so aromatic. Uh, you just tie a little bundle of them and drop them in either like a hot toddy, if you're maybe making some warm mulled apple cider, drop a little bunch of those twigs in the cider and cook that for like half an hour or more, and you'll get that incredible fragrance. Every year I make this reduction of clementine juice if I have a lot of citrus fruit, and I cook the, the, the peeled twigs in that juice, and it's a really delicious thing that I just bottle and keep in the fridge for drinks just very quickly, very easy to use. If you've ever put uh, a vanilla bean in, in a jar of sugar, you can do exactly the same to spice bush and it really perfumes that whole jar of sugar. And then you use the, the sugar just as like a little dusting on cakes or cookies. So it's kind of limitless in, in the way that I'd mentioned cinnamon a little earlier. Cinnamon is, is something that's used in so many cultures across the globe. I, I think of it in Mexican cuisine, in, in East Asian cuisine, in Middle Eastern cuisine. It's like right across the globe, people use cinnamon. The spice brush can be used in all those ways. You can almost sub it for, for cinnamon, even though the flavor profiles are completely different. One of the recipes that really stood out to me from your spice bush chapter was the spice bush coffee cake. And I, the only time I've ever encountered someone who who uses spice bush culinarily, it was in Amherst and this man uh, named Henry, who uses spice bush from all over his landscape in breads and in baked goods, which totally blew my mind. I was like, what? Like, you know, you can you can do that. And what quantity? Like, how does the flavor of the spice bush really come through? Um and so I guess, yeah, that's my question for you is how much spice bush flavor comes through in these different baked concoctions? Spice bush is, is pretty penetrating in, in terms of flavor. So I will use anything from one teaspoon to a tablespoon or more of ground spice bush fruit in in something I'm baking. So, you know, that coffee cake, for example, you it just like a typical coffee cake, it, it goes on that sort of streusel that goes on top of the cake. And the flavor is, it's really there. The minute you bite into the cake or the cookie, I often make shortbread cookies flavored with just a teaspoon of spice bush. It's a very buttery short cookie kind of melt in the mouth. The first thing you get is the spice bush. And it's not, it's not acrid, it's not overwhelming, it's, it's just that very pleasing, citrusy, orangey taste. 
if you've ever baked with cardamom, which can be overwhelming, I think of it in the way of like a cardamom bun or a cardamom cookie. It's, you don't really know what you're tasting at first. You just know that it tastes really, really, really good. <laughs> and you want to use more of it. So yeah, it's an absolute natural spice bush for baking, any kind of baking. I use it a lot. It's probably the spice I actually use the most in my kitchen every day. That's so interesting. I guess I got to be better about harvesting the um, the berries in, in the summertime. Well, you could become the next supplier of spice bush because <laughs> we really need more. You could have a cottage industry going there. That's a very good point. Maybe that'll be my next side hustle. But so for the red berries, you know, they have a pretty big pit inside of them. Do you have to remove the pit when you process them or is that just kind of all get blended in? No, that, that's the best part about spice bush. You have to do almost nothing. You do not remove the pit. In fact, the pit has a lot of flavor in it. So if you're harvesting the red berries, which are the ripe ones in, in late summer, early fall, I just spread them out on, on baking sheets, like parchment-lined baking sheets, and I dry them at room temperature. I'm the, the crazy forager, maybe the only one who does not have a dehydrator. <laughs> I really should have one, but hey, I live in a tiny apartment. So I I pretty much dry at room temperature. It helps if it's not too humid. But at the end of a week, the spice bush that started off red is this really dry brown color. And it's ready to be stored. Uh, usually I'll store it in the freezer. I'll, I'll put a jar of it in the freezer uh, and grind it as I need it. But you you use it pretty much the way you would use regular allspice, uh, which comes either whole or ground. And it lasts, I'm trying to think how long my biggest sort of forage of spice bush, I would say up to a year. I've read sometimes that people say their spice bush becomes stale uh, or rancid. I've never experienced that. I actually suspect that there's something antimicrobial in the spice bush itself. And again, that's where we need like a laboratory. Is there something antimicrobial? <laughs> because a lot of these plants, you know, have all these properties we just don't appreciate yet. So to me, it doesn't go bad. It lasts indefinitely. It's super low maintenance in terms of processing. The prickly ash that we were discussing earlier is, is much more time consuming because with prickly ash, the, the little black seed, in the middle of each fruit is completely tasteless and also really, really hard. All you want is, is that pericarp, the little fleshy covering of the seed. That's where the flavor lies. But spice bush, the whole thing's flavorful. And even the leaves. Some people say, well, I have a male spice bush, so I don't have the berries. And what am I going to do? This is useless. But you have the aromatic twigs. And then in springtime, the very tender leaves can be eaten as salad very very flavorful and they have that orangey flavor profile again and later in summer when the leaves are kind of too fibrous to chew i tend to grill with them a lot growing up in south africa part of what we do or need to do is cook over fire <laughs> we we don't know who we are if we don't have fire to cook on so on our tiny terrace uh, i have a charcoal grill and i'll use the spice bush twigs as skewers but also the leaves, I'll put them just under whatever I'm grilling. The, the combination of, of beef and spice bush is a very, very good one. 
But if you don't eat meat, I think spice bush is absolutely amazing with mushrooms. So if you want to grill some really big portobello mushrooms in summer, just lay some spice bush leaves underneath them, drizzle the, the mushrooms with a little bit of soy sauce. It's it's unforgettably good. Wow. And another thing that my family grows a lot of is wine cap mushrooms. So I imagine oh. that, you know, we could combo <laughs> the wine cap mushrooms with the uh, leaves of the spice. I don't know. You're just blowing. Oh, my goodness. My mouth is watering. That sounds amazing. So do the wine cups come up spontaneously or or are they encouraged? They were encouraged back in 2020. And actually, I think that maybe they need a refresh because you have to just keep feeding them with more wood chips. And okay. we did that. And then they did not pop last season as they had the previous two seasons. So I think that they might have petered out. Not entirely sure. But yeah, they're delicious. And, um, you know, their flavor profile is really unique, too. Oh, that sounds like the, the best combination. Let's move on to persimmons. I am a huge fan of hybrid persimmons. It's like my the, the tree crop I'm most excited about, but they're not the easiest thing to get a hold of. Uh, where I go to school at U UMass Amherst, we have a hybrid persimmon tree there. The persimmons that I most commonly interact with are American persimmons, which many of our listeners know, you know, you eat them when they're basically almost rotten, you know, when they're plopping on the ground and they're almost like a jelly at that point when you eat them. I imagine that in the city, you have access to a lot of Asian supermarkets that have Asian persimmons. So uh, which persimmons are your favorite and what are your favorite uses for them? Well, I definitely like Asian persimmons because they're just, they offer so much, they're big. <laughs> and I suppose the thing I like to do most with big Asian persimmons is is make hoshigaki, which is is this air dried persimmon in in an East Asian tradition, Japanese Korean tradition, where you you peel the persimmon, even if it's unripe, and it's really easy to peel when it's unripe and firm, and then you hang them up. Um, you're supposed to do it outside but I do not really have an outside hanging up situation. So I hang them from our ceiling and very, very slowly they air dry. And as they air dry, this natural bloom of sugar, it looks like mold, but it's not mold, it's sugar. This natural coat of sugar forms on the outside of the persimmon as it loses volume and becomes really concentrated in flavor. And after around a month, the persimmons are dry and you can eat them like a dried fruit. They taste um, a little bit like dates, but I always think there's this sense of rose water. It's like rose water mixed with dates. So that's what I would often do with um, Asian persimmons, either the hachias, the pointy ones, or, or the fuyus, which have the kind of flat bottoms. And increasingly, as you mentioned, there are hybrids, which are probably combinations of both, right? So it looks like a hachia and it's firm, but it's already ripe. So the hybrids that I'm familiar with are crosses between Diospyros khaki crossed with Diospyros virginiana. And so what you end up with, and a lot of the work has been done in Ukraine, interestingly enough, you end up with a persimmon that is about the size of a fuyu and has less astringency issues or sometimes no astringency at all. So it, it's kind of the best of both worlds. Like it brings a lot of the flavor profile of the American, which is like sweet sugar plum and the size and the sort of ripening qualities of the Asian ones. But I bet there are crosses between the Hachia and the Fuyu 
in the Asian realm. I'm just less familiar with Asian persimmons in general. Right. Well, that's that's so interesting. The you, the Ukrainian breeding of American persimmons as well. So I I need to dive into that because that that sounds fascinating. As far as I'm aware, the the American persimmons that I encounter in 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 parks mostly or in gardens in New York City are straight up American species. Certainly, the fruit is very very small, and and as you you mentioned, the American persimmon has to be so so ripe <laughs> if you want to eat it again, because the the unripe American persimmon is is not something you want to take a second bite of. It's it's very astringent. You just want to scrape your tongue. Um, so what I like to do with with the persimmon trees, I know, is wait for a storm like a really big windstorm or a thunderstorm in in fall. And this shakes them off the branches. And better yet, this is not great for the tree, but sometimes it breaks branches. So the best thing I can find is like a fallen branch and a whole bunch of persimmons that I can actually reach. The bad thing is that if they're still on the branch, they're they're often still still unripe. But if you apply that hoshigaki technique, where you peel the persimmons and peeling an American persimmon, I would say is um, a therapeutic act because it takes a long time. You peel them and then you hang them up from the ceiling and dry them. They dry super slowly, but magically that astringency, that, that sort of tongue scraping, horrible quality of an unripe persimmon disappears as it very slowly dries. And then you have a little dried persimmon which tastes like a sugar plum, or again, to me, has this kind of sense of rose water. So it's a very personal taste experience. I think not everyone would get that, but to me, that's what's very interesting about them. So what you do with a little dried persimmon, you usually, well, what I usually do is I bake with them. Sometimes they have seeds. Sometimes they don't have seeds. I'll often soak them. So you're actually rehydrating a dried persimmon. But I'll soak them, for instance, in Earl Grey tea. And the Earl Grey tea flavors, there's bergamot in that. The citrusy bergamot plays really well with the American persimmon flavor. Then I'll chop them up and I'll incorporate them in a bread. I often make uh, focaccia, which is such a great, easy bread to play with but you can put whatever you like on top of a focaccia so i'll press all those rehydrated american persimmons into the top of the focaccia bake it 20 minutes and there you have a very very nice bread made made with american persimmons doesn't have to be baking i also my husband and i really like to eat duck again apologies vegans and vegetarians but persimmons and duck are a very good combination there's just something about the flavors the, the fattiness of the duck the, the the strong fruitiness of the persimmon that's a really nice combination one recipe that's in your persimmon chapter that really stood out to me i guess persimmon isn't maybe the main feature but it's a combination is the uh sunchoke soup with persimmon prickly ash oil and once again it's probably standing out to me because there's a beautiful photograph um accompanying it which if you did the photography for this book it's really phenomenal i did thank you it just looks mouthwatering and sunchokes are another thing that I don't really know what to do. Like I, gr I grow them and there's the inulin issue and I'm not entirely sure how to use them in the kitchen in, similar, in a similar way to uh, American persimmons. 
could we talk about this recipe for a second? Yes, I'm just I'm just paging to the recipe to to see what I did. That's so amazing. <laughs> what did I do? Ah, oh, yes, that's amazing. Oh, now I want sunchoke soup. <laughs> Me too. I do you have persimmons? I think this is going to be dinner. All right. <laughs> so sunchokes are as you mentioned, sometimes problematic because they they contain inulin, which is a very hard to digest uh, starch. One of the ways to deal with the inulin, if we just back up to the, the sunchokes for a second, is to, before you cook the sunchokes, peel them and slice them and soak them in water for at least an hour. And that deals with a lot of the issues. And for anyone who's not familiar with the issues, they give you gas. <laughs> This is how you don't have that problem. You you slice them after peeling and then soak them in water. Or you can do a little parboil and then toss the water before you use them in, in this particular instance in a soup. So in this case, you make the soup, which is sort of very creamy. It tastes a little bit maybe like a potato soup, but it has that great sunchoke flavor. And then I use the persimmon and prickly ash oil just to drizzle on top of the soup it looks very pretty because it's this this vivid orange color on top of the pale cream colored soup but it also just adds like a spark a, a spicy spark to this creamy soup where you have the sweetness of the pureed persimmon steeped with the very tingly numbing citrusy flavor of prickly ash and this is an oil you can keep in the fridge kind of indefinitely. I tend not to keep oils that have plant matter in them on the counter. It's strangely a recipe for botulism. So if you have olive oil with a nice sprig of rosemary and a clove of garlic on top of your counter, that's a really bad idea. Um, and the same goes for these really complex compound oils. You want to keep them in the fridge and just even the freezer and take out a tablespoonful or however much you need for a recipe, just bring it up to room temperature. And then in this case, drizzle it on top of the sunchoke soup. So, you know, that was just an example of me playing in the kitchen. I, I don't always, in fact, I seldom have a plan. You have the ingredients though. So you've got a whole bunch of persimmons. You happen to have the prickly ash, which you've preserved from summer. And now what do you do? And, and sometimes it's like the ingredients just telling you what to do and, and something interesting is born. So that's how that landed up in the book. Yeah, I mean, interesting, I think is uh, an understatement. Okay, <laughs> I, think we should, I think we should move on to a different uh, plant species. Uh, okay. I would vote for pokeweed because that is a contentious and unusual plant that you know lots of people just think is will poison you, it doesn't have edible uses, and or that the three changes of water is too much work, et cetera, et cetera. But more recently, I've been hearing of folks using it and has apparently is delicious. I've never had it. Really? Yay. Okay. So this spring, you have to eat pokeweed. <laughs> All right. On it. Uh, and you do not have to write your will before eating the pokeweed. Okay. Good, good yeah. to <laughs> Pokeweed is, is guaranteed to to, to create arguments among people who know a little bit about it. And it's not like I have all the answers. Uh, again, this is a case where I think of all the plants that I work with often, pokeweed is the one I would most like to get into a lab 
and I don't mean the dog, I mean a laboratory, at different stages. I would like the pokeweed shoots to be tested raw, like straight off the plant, cooked in boiling water just once, like you cook asparagus, cooked in boiling water three times, like a lot of books will still tell you to do, and also roasted. Like I've never actually roasted pokeweed without boiling it first. I want to know what's in it when, because I don't think anyone can actually tell us. Uh, it's a case where I've read as much as I can. Yes, I've read what's already been published in books, but I try to keep up with what's been published in terms of academic papers, but I'm just one human being and I there's no way I could just focus on this one plant as much as I would like to. So that's like a long, boring preamble to pokeweed. The reason people are worried about it is, again, in toxicology studies, pokeweed is known. I mean, it definitely does poison livestock. So you might have had pigs who are rooting around and they unearth this pokeweed rhizome, this great big underground storage organ, and they get sick. Or you have cows in a field and they're eating the pokeweed plants and they eat the whole pokeweed plant, possibly when it's mature. Uh, and they get sick and some of them die. But what about when you have a human being who comes along and finds a tender pokeweed shoot and cooks it and eats it and they're fine. And they keep doing this for generations and they're fine and their grandparents are fine. <laughs> Why? So to me, the answer is, is two things. It's, it's the cooking process itself, possibly, or it's the maturity of the plant. Sam Thayer, who is a really good wild foods author, waited until I think his most recent book to write about pokeweed. And what he has to say is very, very interesting. So if you've never read Sam Thayer, I definitely recommend him as, as a source. And in his book, he also recommends what many older books do, which is to boil pokeweed three times. I do not boil pokeweed three times. I cook it like asparagus. I harvest the really young tender shoots and I blanch them just like asparagus. And when they're just cooked through uh, and very bright green, that's when I eat them. But I've also met a forager Sheila Neil Legere, and you actually find her name and find her recipe in the pokeweed chapter of the book, page 293. She told me, she grew up in the South, that she grew up eating pokeweed fried, and that her parents and grandparents ate it this way too. They never parboiled the plant at all. They did not parboil the shoots, they just dipped it in egg, dipped it in corn flour, fried it, ate it. It's absolutely delicious. And based on her say, so I started doing that. So every year, I'll just once a year, I'll do this kind of fry up of poke shoots. And it's it's amazing. Why have they not gotten sick? And that's a question. I can't answer it. Why have I not gotten sick? Why have all the Native American nations who ate pokeweed not become sick? Or were there cases of poisonings that were not documented. Again, we don't know. I've been eating it now for, let me do the math, 15 years. And I eat it every spring, maybe four, five, six times a season. 
you know, as a, as a special treat. And as far as I'm aware, I'm still totally fine. Having said that, some toxins are liver toxins and they build up very, very slowly and you're not aware of being sick. So I'm not trying to scare people off eating pokeweed. I just think that there's a lot that we don't know. But I feel that tradition carries a lot of weight. And if pokeweed was a bona fide Native American food, which it was, that carries weight. What does that mean? And how were different nations preparing that? I don't have those answers. But I see it as this forgotten, misunderstood, underused, reviled native vegetable that seriously needs more study. Certainly. And for those who might be familiar with the song Poke Salad Annie, that's, <laughs> that's about pokeweed. I mean, there, you know, there is cultural significance to this plant in the United States and plenty of documented examples of people eating it without issues. But I think that what you said about sort of the the unknowns and the potential for toxins to build up over time um, is true for a lot of these plants. We just, you know, there's not enough uh, data. Yeah, it's 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 this sort of void, this vacuum. And and when a plant becomes financially important or significant, I believe the the studies would follow. But I'm not sure how to, you know, you you really need someone who's who's fascinated by the subject and who really wants to study it and who has access to the laboratory, to the funding of all the plants I work with. Definitely, pokeweed is the one I'm I'm the most curious about. And it used to be canned. It used to be sold in cans in the South. And as far as I can find out, the reason for the canneries closing was not because anyone got sick. It was because the people who were out foraging as a job just got better paid jobs. And the demand for the canned poke dropped and the canneries closed. Yeah, it's 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 a mystery. I think it's probably my favorite spring vegetable seems like uh there's research needed for somebody's like phd thesis basically <laughs> yeah the grilled pokeweed pitas recipe that you have in your book or actually i'm not sure there's a photo on on page 297 is that the pokeweed pitas or sloppy josephinas whichever it is it looks delicious yeah that's a good question i think those are the grilled pokeweed pitas <laughs> The sloppy Josephina is really, really sloppy. It's like a sloppy Joe, like a diner sandwich with ground meat and the really sort of slurpy, succulent, blanched pokeweeds tucked into the bun with it. But the grilled pokeweed pitas are like, like a sort of guilty homemade fast food where you just fold over a pita stuffed with cheese and stuffed with these cooked pokeweed spears and then you you cook them in butter or oil and flip them. So it's almost like a grilled cheese sandwich, but it's inside a pita, which kind of makes it flat and nice to just crunch into. I'm so hungry now. I know my mouth is watering. <laughs> 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 Sorry to our <laughs> listeners who are going to be pausing uh, to go. When is it going to be spring? <laughs> <laughs> and so the flavor of pokeweed, if you could compare it to, I mean, is it similar to asparagus? Is it similar to milkweed? Like flavor profile? It's so, it's so hard to to really describe these flavors if someone's never tasted them. And, and yet it's the most obvious question. I usually say it's a little bit like green beans crossed with asparagus, but it's it's not really like either of those. Once you've tasted it more than once, 
you immediately recognize this is the taste of pokeweed. So it's like typical green vegetable, but what is a typical green vegetable? Definitely the texture of asparagus. It's a little bit more succulent. So it's also something that really likes to kind of be cooked with other sauces or in soups or with beans. It carries other flavors really, really well. So interesting. Wow. Okay. I guess I will be harvesting because poke, I mean, poke grows all over the landscape and I have not ever want, you know, I just rip it up and I throw it in the, the mulch pile. So oh, send it to me. Okay. <laughs> the one thing people should know about collecting poke in the spring is as long as you can snap it by hand, it's, it's tender enough to harvest when you have to start sawing it with a knife or when it becomes fibrous, it's too mature. And that is when it's considered toxic, whether it is actually at that point or not, I'm not sure, but always very, very young, very tender. You should be able to snap it with your fingers. Which is a good rule of thumb for lots of, you know, same thing with milk. <laughs> lots, yes. of, lots of these. Okay. So we probably have time for just one or two more um, focus areas in terms of plants. What I have on my list of ones we didn't cover, either sumac, pawpaw, nettle, Japanese knotweed, uh, elderflower, or burdock. Oh, um, gosh, I I don't know. Uh, is, is sumac too well known or so well known that it's actually interesting? So sumac, lots of folks make sumac lemonade or sumac tea. Um, mm. But beyond that, and that's the only thing I've ever done with it, um, and the only way I've encountered it at foraging hangouts or farm events, but I know there's lots of other ways to prepare it. So yeah, why don't we dive into sumac? Sumac is, is again, one of the spices I use the most. And because some of my early sort of training in food was Middle Eastern and specifically Turkish, sumac's really important in Turkey and in the Middle East. And of course, it's a, it's a different species. It's probably Rus coriaria, a Mediterranean sumac. But in North America, we have tons of native sumacs. And the great thing about them is that in terms of flavor, I think they're extraordinarily similar. I made this late summer, this last late summer, I made the sumac spice from winged sumac, which is the last sumac in our area to, to ripen. And I did that made the spice just by drying the individual heads of sumac, picking off all the berries, which again are actually droops. They have a hard seed. And then the surrounding, the pericarp around the seed is the really sour, flavorful part. So you spread out all the seeds, dry them, nothing fancy, not in the oven, because even a low setting I think is too high. So just air dry. When they're dry, put them in a spice grinder, whiz them around in the spice grinder, which is pretty much essential to this job, and then strain them through a coarse mesh strainer. A fine mesh is not gonna do it. You need a coarse mesh where the, the seeds stay behind, the little sharp pieces of seed, and then the nice red flavorful covering of those seeds falls through. So that's how I made the sumac spice. And then I did a little taste test. I, and I really thought my sumac was gonna fail the test. Blind test, tasted the winged sumac, tasted sumac that I'd bought at a local Middle Eastern store. I didn't know which was which. So that's just very satisfying to know that you've foraged something and that it tastes as good as the commercially available spice, but it also happens to be 
super local. It's coming from your neighborhood, from very close to where you live. And also, aside from all the time invested, you didn't have to pay for it. So the Sumac spice itself is, is very versatile. It's usually used raw, so you don't always cook with it. You use it as a finishing condiment. I suppose the most famous way of using sumac is possibly just scattering it across hummus, but I use it a lot in salads. I make a really potent onion salad where I slice red onions really, really thinly. I dunk them in ice water for maybe a minute, drain them, and then mix them with a whole tablespoon of sumac spice. It's this incredible sort of relish that you eat on the side of something. It could go in a cheese sandwich. It could go with um, barbecued meat. It could go with roasted root vegetables. It's very, very aromatic. But as you mentioned, how most people use sumac is fresh. So they would put the whole head of sumac in water, maybe overnight and strain it and make sumac aid, which is this really pretty reddish um, sour drink. I think that's great. But one of the things with foraging or even with any other flavor is you, you want to preserve that flavor somehow. And what I discovered years ago was if I cook down that sumac aid or sumac water, it becomes this really concentrated, syrupy, almost like a molasses. And if you've ever worked with pomegranate molasses, which is again, a Middle Eastern uh, condiment, sumac molasses is the same, but it's sumac and it's made with, you know, the plants that grow all around us that are native to where we are and it's shelf stable. That's kind of the most amazing thing. It's not something you have to put in the fridge. It's not something you have to worry about going moldy. I suspect again that sumac is antimicrobial, so it's fighting off any bugs that would mess it up. Uh, so sumac molasses, or what I, I sometimes call it sumac essence, because it's so concentrated, is this really versatile ingredient, very, very sour. But you use it instead of lemon juice. Very, very interesting. I would never have thought to go through the concentrated route. That's, I don't know. I'm, I'm learning so much. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm learning so much today. I just feel completely out of my element. And once again, I mean, another plant that just grows everywhere, you know, grows on the side of the highway, grows um, in ditches and on roadsides. And I imagine you can find all over your neighborhood in Brooklyn. But are you ever concerned about the sort of particulates or, you know, exposure to urban areas with, with sumac or with, I guess, with any of these plants? Yeah, collecting wild foods in a, in a really big city is problematic. So, so for a lot of my foraging, I'll try to go further afield. Uh, I would definitely not collect sumac from the highway. It's funny how it's always next to highways, but it is. Yeah, highways would be problematic because then, you know, all the particles in the air are literally settling on the fruit and they'll do that from when the fruit was in blossom right through its ripening stage. So that's kind of months and months of accumulation. And the problem with sumac is you don't actually want to wash it. If you wash it, you tend to wash off that real sourness, which is the whole point of sumac. You want that sourness. It's, it's even why you don't really want to forage for sumac right after a thunderstorm or a rain shower. Give it a few days to, to build up those sour oils again. Otherwise, you don't have sour sumac. So yeah, if you're foraging something 
where you're not going to wash it. You definitely don't want to be near a highway. Luckily, here in New York, there's a lot of coastline. And I tend to think that the coastline is just cleaner in term terms of air pollution. I wonder how wrong I am. <laughs> Again, you'd actually need to test that. Um, but yeah, you, you need to exercise quite a bit of common sense. It's okay with some plants. I'm thinking of service berries or June berries, amelanchier. These you can wash. So if you really had to pick them near a road, anything that's on the outside of the fruit is probably something you can get rid of by a, a good soak and a, a rub in water. Last year I was looking into this and there's a few studies about particulates from highways on, on foods. And in some cases, the foods that we buy at grocery stores, even because, you know, they have to be transported um, yeah. hundreds of miles and they get exposed to these sort of particular, you know, they get exposed to highways. And in some cases it's just as bad as uh, something that's growing on the side of the road. And basically said, so long as you wash it, you know, you're, you're removing the vast majority of, of what it's been exposed to. But And it also, it depends on the species of sumac sometimes. I find that some sumacs are more prone to bugs. For example, staghorn sumac just seems to be attacked by bugs more often than smooth sumac or winged sumac. But that's the other nice thing about sumac in general is there are, there are at least four species really commonly at least up and down the East Coast, as I'm aware of, which which are ripe in, in different months. So you have this long sumac season from kind of late June all the way through October. Rustafina staghorn sumac is the one that I'm most familiar with. I don't know if, I guess there probably is winged sumac around, but I just don't, I, I don't know. I, it's, staghorn is the one that you just see everywhere. Yeah, staghorn's so beautiful. It's, it's, it's kind of hard to miss. I think I like winged sumac because it doesn't have the the tiny, tiny little hairs that staghorn does. The hairs are not really harmful. It's just I don't like their texture very much. And winged sumac and smooth sumac don't don't have that hairiness. For Do you have any tips for young chefs or avid foragers um, who are listening to all of this and are as blown away as I am? What should they do if they want to pursue foraging and cooking with foraged foods professionally? That's a, it's a very good question. And like all good questions, it's really hard to answer. <laughs> I think what I would suggest is don't see foraging as something separate from the rest of your life. To me, foraging is actually quite a small part of a bigger relationship with the environment and with food and with gardening and growing and with a love of plants I think people feel that oh, well I have to go on a foraging expedition it's a special adventure I need special equipment I have to go to a, a very particular place and to me it's more about being there wherever the there is the there could be your back garden it could be a local community garden it could be a local park but the most important thing is to be there and to pay attention and when you start paying attention, you start seeing things you never saw before. Even if you walk there every single day, you'll start seeing new stuff. And learning about whatever you see is, is the big adventure. And whether the things you learn spark something which is bigger, like a career, I wouldn't say a career in foraging, but that, that's a hard thing to do unless you're a black forager. <laughs> who is so like wildly successful. Um, 
it'll spark connections to other things, to the food system, to agroforestry, to small farming, to food security. To me, foraging links to so many other things, from soil science to a beautiful plate in a very expensive restaurant. It, it tells us about how we eat. We think about foraged foods in a much more conscious way than we think about the foods in the supermarket aisle. We should be thinking about the foods in the supermarket aisle. But I think that foraging actually makes that connection where it didn't exist before. So that's a kind of rambling answer. I'm not sure how useful it is, but if I could sum it up, it is be there wherever your wild things are every day and pay attention. Uh, I think that was a beautiful answer. Where can folks keep up with your work? Um, the easiest place to find me is is on my very narrow, narrow social media presence, which is on Instagram at Marie underscore Fulyun. Gotcha. And do you also have a blog? I have a blog, which I don't update enough, but it is it is where people book for my classes and my walks and my forage picnics. And the blog is 66squarefeet.com. Six, six, the numbers not written out, 66 square feet. And if folks want to purchase your books, Forage Harvest Feast, which was published by Chelsea Green, and then 66 square feet is the other book that you wrote uh, prior to this one. Um, right. And, and 66 square feet at the time was really just the size of our terrace. So <laughs> it became quite a thing. And can people purchase books directly through you or is there a specific place they should go? Well, always your local bookstore is a good, a good place to order one of my books. Um, they'd be very happy to do that for you. Or you can go directly to the publisher for Forage Harvest Feast. And the publisher is Chelsea Green Books. You can buy it directly from them online. They'd ship to you. Otherwise, the big A is always where most people still would prefer to buy their books. I very much appreciate you not uh, saying. <laughs> <spelling out. laughs> I don't know who you're talking about. <laughs> Marie, this conversation was really, really enlightening. I am very excited for the spring when apparently I'm going to be eating everything in my backyard. I really hope so. For our listeners who stuck around this long and listened to the whole episode, thank you so much and we'll see you next time. <laughs>